Welcome to Design for AI. I'm Mark Bailey. Today we'll be talking to Senior Manager of Data Science and also the Head of Data Science for Getty Images. This is Andrea Gagliano. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And so why don't you go ahead and just give an introduction? Yeah, so the team that I lead is responsible for using machine learning models to improve our customers' image finding experience. Um, so at Getty Images, uh, especially on our, our creative images side, we often have customers who come to our site, they're looking for images for, for a campaign they're building or a story they're building, and they have this vision in their head, but they don't ha- exactly have the right language to describe um, what they're looking for in the imagery that they're seeking. So my team really builds models trying to assist them in that finding experience. And these models could be anything from understanding the customer's intent, uh, it could be recommending or personalizing content to them, uh, or using computer vision to really have a deep, semantic, uh, rich understanding of our imagery, whether that's the objects or the style of the images um, or the human relationships in those images. And so what topics do you find interesting for designing for uh, AI or machine learning? Uh, I'm particularly interested in AI for creative disciplines, uh, specifically using machine learning to make creative practices more accessible and easier for people. Uh, part of that is that I grew up, and I, when I was growing up, I was pretty adamantly refused to engage in anything artistic because I felt I wasn't creative enough. I really identified as, as the math girl. Uh, later in life, I really surprised myself when I stumbled into the world of poetry and drawing and painting and found that I really loved them. And the first machine learning model I built was uh, for doing poetry generation, which really opened my eyes to how machine learning could be used as a tool to really assist, support, and encourage in someone's creative practice. Um, So when I um, sort of think about the the potential for machine learning and AI, I really see it as this collaborator to people in their creative, creative practices. Oh yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, one of the areas that I'm interested in is is uh, GANs for creating uh, visual images. So yeah, no, that's... yes, there's there's a lot there, especially on the on the sort of design and user side of of how to make that uh, capability um, sort of in a, a a good trust relationship. Um, I often think about. If we have two humans in a room and they're painting together, or maybe they're trying to take a picture together, there's this level of uh, like trust that they have to develop or vulnerability to really do a risky idea. And if you take one of those human collaborators away and replace it with a machine, um, you have to really think about that trust and vulnerability and that design and those expectations um, in that pretty sensitive relationship. Yep. And so now... As far as uh, for your work, how how does machine learning affect your users? Like, how do you use uh, the data science to help improve their experience? Yeah. So I mentioned before that some of our customers don't have the best language to describe what they're looking for. So maybe they're not a photography expert or an image expert. And so they don't know how to describe depth of field or some composition or the, the color palette that they're after. Um, but they do know what they like when they see it. And so they're very visual people. They'll see something they like and they can point to it and, and use that as sort of a signal of, of what they're interested in. And so the thing that uh, machine learning really affords us is 
this uh, mathematical representation of some sort of image. So we can start to do um, help people find images and videos in more intelligent ways than just by language or just by words. And often that requires some sort of interaction um, where we have this mathematical understanding of our images, but then we need some um, interaction or experience that sort of ob obfuscates that and helps the customer uh, basically search through imagery and using images as the way by which they are exploring and navigating a space of, of images. So why don't you go ahead and walk us through like what your process is to get the customer the experience that they want through machine learning? So we always for sure start with the customer and really deeply understanding their workflow and their process. Um, oftentimes, people jump really quickly into machine learning as the solution, but that's not always the case. Sometimes simple logic can be used or simple software development practices can be used. So really starting with the customer and understanding what their workflow and process is, figuring out what tools and technologies can be used to support their workflow. If machine learning is one of those cases, um, then the nature of the UX conversations uh, and research really sort of changes because you start talking about what are the expectations of that exact feature of that exact model, uh, digging into how much data do we think we'll be getting from the customer, implicit or explicit. So that could be whether the customer is inputting data into a form versus whether they're clicking on the site. Both of those are different types of data that we can use behind the scenes in the machine learning. And customers may have different levels of patience for different types of data. They may be really impatient if they're filling out a bunch of data on a form. Um, and so we have to consider that limitation in whatever machine learning model we're building or how we're choosing what our machine learning model is. So that type of information is really important from, um, to, to get out of those user studies. Um, it's also really important that we focus a lot on how sensitive will the customer be to if the model fails. Um, if, if something goes wrong, uh, then with the output of the model, then that could destroy the trust with the customer um, or um, make them feel like they don't have control anymore. Um, so that's a good place to jump in. Um, how do you make sure that you do keep up the trust and that you're able to keep the user in control? Yeah. So one way is to really design for change. If, a, if we have a machine learning model that gives some sort of output in a UI, the result, um, if it's maybe something that's wrong or not right for the customer, that we give them the opportunity to change that and fix it. And so we make them feel like they have um, ownership over the results of the model. So one example that we've experienced is we have our photographers or our contributors who upload images into a platform that make it into our marketplace. And when they upload those images, they um, are adding keywords or tags to those images. And we oftentimes will auto-suggest some of the keywords powered by a machine learning model. And say for the example, if someone is uploading a picture of someone climbing a mountain, and we, our model ends up suggesting that it's a male person in the image but doesn't suggest any female keywords. Uh, that could be problematic and it could be hurtful to the photographer or the contributor who's uploading that image. And so that's something that we want to, um, from a UX perspective, be really sensitive to what the type of output is from the model 
and where that model could go wrong or where it could fail and make sure that we're designing in a way, whether that's the, the phrasing that we're using, the experience or giving, I think the best way that we've found is giving the customer the ability to change and manipulate the results of the model. So they're not expecting them to be perfect. They're expecting them to be sort of half-baked. No, that's a very good example. So I'm curious, um, as far as, it sounds like there's a problem with bias there, um, you mm-hmm. know, going by uh, what the what's normally in the images versus what the user wants. And I'm kind of curious, you have used machine learning to get around uh, biases that might be in your data set. Yes, absolutely. So we have a lot of biases, just as, as many other places. Um, a lot of those biases come from sort of the nature of uh, user interactions. A lot of users are inherently biased, not intentional, but that results in um, click data that is naturally biased and skewed, which impacts um, the, the data that we have available to us. And so something that we've done a lot on is first and foremost training our uh, people, whether they are product managers, designers, data scientists, really getting them up to speed on what does it mean to have a biased training data set and a resulting bias model and what are those implications downstream in the customer experience. And really spelling out those examples has made people aware enough to ask the right questions. So... Uh, I heard a PM the other day ask uh, how representative and balanced our training data set was that my team was using for a particular model. And that is the, exactly the type of question that should be asked, not just from the data science side, but from all parties and everyone involved in the project. One way that we at Getty really look into that is a lot of our, so we're using a lot of our images to build training data sets for models and our images have these uh, keywords on them. And so we're fortunate where we can take a large, um, a large set of images and do a quick check on what is the balance of gender, age, and ethnicity, because we have that information already on uh, our photographs. And so uh, we can do quick checks to see, oh, okay, is this training set relatively balanced? If not, let's do something to make sure that it is more balanced. So for the PM, when you were glad that they brought that question up, do you know of a way that you have been able to build this fairness into the process, or is this still an ongoing issue? Yeah. We have... um, We've built sort of decision-making frameworks. So every new model that we're building um, has to go through this decision-making framework around biases to start the conversation with the right people about what considerations need to be made because it's different for every model. Uh, If we're building a model to detect Uh, dogs versus cats, some of the sensitivities are different than if we're building a model to detect um, hair color because there's attributes that are human and people attributes. So there's questions that go into that that framework that are around where, where is the model coming from? Are we starting with an open source model and making adjustments to it internally? If we're starting with an open source model, are we asking the right questions and doing the right research to understand 
what data was used for that model um, and what markets and customer segments that model works well in because of what how it was trained and making sure that we're not using this model in a market or a place where we uh, shouldn't be using it. Uh, one example is we have uh, an, an authenticity versus stocky model. And one of the pieces of um, authenticity is that sometimes people aren't smiling. Um, and stocky images, people are smiling. And that's a very uh, North American, US-based notion, whereas other countries don't have that notion. So being very mindful of which markets and customers do these models work in. And those types of questions are built into that framework so that we can discuss what are the risks and benefits that come into play when building, uh, when we set out to build a model. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd read your um, article that you had written on trying to help people to find non-stock images. And so okay. I, I found it really interesting. Um, and uh, I was kind of curious how you were able to dig into what people thought were stock images versus what people thought were not stock images and then being able to train the models to be able to give them, you know, that information without, I mean, I'm sure that most people don't just type in non-stock images for their search term. Right. They're very, they're very nebulous terms. Um, Authenticity is almost sort of this, this catch-all that catches a lot of different things, whether that is um, this notion of whether or not people are smiling, um, it's the idea that someone doesn't have too much makeup on. It's the idea that it isn't a stereotypical image. Like the list goes on of what is sort of wrapped up into that concept. And when we first went out to build that model, we um, built training data sets that was just authentic imagery and just stocky imagery. And we didn't have enough of the customer conversations to really realize how many dimensions there were to this larger concept of authenticity. And so our, our first model was, was okay, but it wasn't great. And so we went back out into talking with customers and uncovered a lot of these different dimensions of authenticity that we hadn't been thinking about before. One way that we did that was we took, um, we built training data sets and we took those data sets or sample images from those data sets directly to the customer and had the conversation with them about, we're labeling this image authentic. Um, and they would actually disagree and say, oh, that image is, is stocky. And I skeptically would ask why, and they would say, um, oh, well, yeah, she isn't smiling, which I know is something of, of authentic imagery, but she's looking at the camera, and she has this really awkward pose, and she's standing in a garden. So that made me realize, oh, the pose and sort of how the person looks doesn't match the context of the background. And so that's uh, a very specific thing that made me as a data scientist rethink what are the features that I'm really using and considering in this model. Um, and that's a, a pretty nuanced uh, insight or realization from the customer that we wouldn't have gotten just by asking them, what do you mean by authenticity or what do you mean by stocky? It really took the taking these examples of images and putting them in front of the customer and having them really describe what they're reacting to. Oh, that's cool. Um, do you have any other examples of how you've uh, been able to create rapid prototyping uh, with machine learning as far as being able to, you know, uh, turn that around and test it with customers? Okay, so definitely the rapid prototypes that we make are 
really trying to emulate this the situation that the customer would be in with the model. So different from software development, a machine learning model can have a range of different output and that output is pretty unpredictable. And so trying to take cases, both good cases and bad cases and trying to emulate those. And it's tedious and it takes time. Um, and I know uh, we've had our designers sit there and, and create one mock-up where the, the content is what we think the customer would expect. And then we've had them create mock-ups where the content is not what the customer would expect. And we present those blindly and uh, do tests on, on how they respond to those different situations. We've done that in the uh, sort of wireframe mock-up sense. We've also done it as uh, small front-end tests that are, that are actually implemented but are very, very controlled uh, where we can actually measure how responsive it is. Is there any other areas that uh, you found that keeping the user in mind uh, really is important, say, for collecting the data, massaging, tagging, um, you know, all the way through the whole life cycle for machine learning? Yeah, I would say the area, one area in particular is testing of the model, um, whether that's validation sets or what metrics you're using for testing. Um, or specific sort of, not quite unit tests, but sort of you one-off tests that you know that are important to the customer. Uh, oftentimes, we'll build a validation set that is some subset of our training set, which is, which is great, but really taking that a step further and making sure that that validation set um, has elements that we know are important to our customers. Um, this is uh, one, one additional thing that I like to do that is not, um, not really a scalable thing, but I try to think about a model where from as if I was an artist, as if I was taking this new technology and I wanted to make some critique of it or make some um, cultural or social statement about, about it and kind of take this nefarious view. If I was to use this technology in a bad way, what would I do with it? Um, a lot of artists sort of take that tact, and so I think that it's a good frame of mind to put myself in with every model that we encounter, and thinking through what um, are the ways that that model could be used poorly, and specifically building tests against those cases. I'm sure uh, when you introduce to your stakeholders that you're thinking of all the bad ways to use your model, that you're going to get some weird questions. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. So I'm kind of curious, uh, what other questions, how, how else have you seen the questions from your stakeholders change? Uh, so we've done a lot of training of our PMs and designers. Uh, we had a two-day long training where we explained the difference between classification models and similarity models and how the output of those models differs and how they should consider those differently in their designs. Uh, we taught them implicit versus explicit data, how we're getting data from the customer through what they're explicitly telling us on the site versus clicks that we can see behind the scenes and how that impacts the models that we build or the models that we choose to build. We taught them that machine learning models are very probabilistic in nature and they will inevitably fail uh, in ways that we can't anticipate. And so the, the designs need to really account for those situations. 
And so what's, what's come out of that two-day training, it took a lot of time, but I found it really valuable because now PMs and designers will come to me and say, oh, I have this idea. Do you think that it's a classification model or a similarity model? And the fact that they can sort of start to think in that frame of mind is really helpful uh, for that collaboration between data science and design and product. So have you noticed any other differences in the software lifecycle than, say, just normal software for uh, doing UX on it? Yeah, on on the UX side, it's really uh, thinking about all of the ways that the model can fail and go wrong. I think that's inherently a big difference from software development. You can't emulate all of the situations that might happen. Um, and you're also designing in a case in sort of traditional software design, there's the side, there's the expectation that your user will use what you're building in a myriad of different ways. And so there's already a lot of unknowns that a designer is encountering. When you bring in machine learning, now there's a myriad of different ways that your product can change. So you have uh, many more uh, levels of unpredictability and scenarios that can happen and to be sort of designed for or designed to allow for. Um, and so really thinking, um, being respectful of, of that uh, sort of wide range of possibilities, I think is a good frame of mind to be in when doing UX, whether that's the research or the design of, of these systems. When you are creating these models, uh, do you create separate models for the edge cases, or do you try and train the model to try and handle more of a generalist type thing? We we definitely build the models in a generalist way, but we very much consider the different markets and nuances to those markets of where those models may or may not make sense, as well as the customers that those models may or may not make sense for. Got it. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that is, unfortunately, all the time we have for today. If people wanted to contact you, how would they be able to find you? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. All right. Great. So I'll go ahead and have that in the show notes. And uh, is there anything that you're working on now or soon to be released that you'd like to let people know about? Um, I'm just really excited uh, for this next year of really interesting problems in the computer vision space. Uh, we're really trying to be that leader of, of machine understanding of our images. And that takes a lot of UX design as well as data science. And so we're hiring in all those positions and product as well. So please reach out if you're interested. And is there any events or anything that you've heard about that's coming up that uh, you find interesting? I can plug one of my own events. Uh, We're having a MLUX event at Getty Images on February 12th. Uh, We're talking about data science and ethics and society, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I've been to some of the other uh, events there. Those are always really interesting to go to. All right. Well, that is all the time we have. And so thank you again. Thank you. And a big thank you also to all you listeners. Your questions are awesome. And I'll be making sure to integrate a lot of the questions into some future episodes that I have in the works. If you do have any questions, I'd love to hear back from you. So just go ahead and use your phone to record a voice memo and then email it to podcast at designforai.com. It's a great way to let me know who I should interview, what you would like, and to hear more of. And also, if you have any questions or comments, go ahead and record a message for those too. If you'd like to see what I'm up to, you can find me on Twitter at design for ai And thank you again. And remember, with how powerful AI is, let's design it to be usable for everyone. Thank you. Thank you.